A pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. He is the co-author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled How COVID-19 Could Transform Nonprofit Organizations. A real pleasure to welcome Dr. Brent McKnight to our program. Dr. McKnight is an associate professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. McKnight, Brent, good morning and welcome to the program, sir. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. And uh, one thing that we have identified for many months now, Brent, is the fact that since COVID-19 has changed our lives, well, more or less permanently, uh, our giving habits have changed. And and they changed rather dramatically right from the get-go because, well, we were all locked down and we our, 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 everything became disrupted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. Uh, definitely, the nonprofit sector is is uh, facing some some reduced giving uh, as people grapple with the uncertainty that they're uh, they're facing um, during COVID. And one of the other things that I'm starting to hear from, and I'd appreciate your your uh, your input on this, is that our we've changed some of our giving habits, Brent. We're we're not supporting uh, the Red Cross or the United Way to the extent that we have in previous years, as we tend to, uh, under very changed circumstances, look for more local ways to target our donations. Yeah, that's certainly one of the really interesting uh, happenings during COVID has been a focus on local, whether it's nonprofits or whether it's uh, retailers, right? So that is definitely a shift that we're happening, uh, seeing happening. Uh, in the study that we've been looking at and the work we've been doing, we've been talking to nonprofits uh, across Canada, and, and we're finding that uh, the way in which funders fund the organizations, these nonprofits, um, has contributed a little bit to challenges for nonprofits and how they respond to COVID. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about nonprofits first, Dr. McKnight? Can we just talk about define what you and your team refers to as nonprofit organizations, NPOs? Yeah, that's that's a great uh, great point. Uh, in our study, we were looking at nonprofits that crossed a wide range of, of organizations, from social service organizations that provided support for homelessness or poverty um, or mental health, uh, to arts organizations, uh, symphonies and and uh, museums uh, and those those like, as well as uh, intermediaries that might advocate for uh, the nonprofit community or uh, provide funds uh, for members of the nonprofit community. But it, it is those organizations that are um, the fabric of our social structure outside of our formal government um, organization. Mm -hmm. And how much of their annual input in terms of cash flow do most of these organizations, organizations rather, receive from government? Some of them are the beneficiaries of government grants. Are all of them? No, no, definitely they are not all uh, beneficiaries of government grants. Um, there's a wide range of how nonprofits are funded. Uh, government certainly part of it for for many nonprofits, um, but uh, individual donors uh, or large donors, um, and, as well as uh, funders. So there's private foundations and public foundations uh, that um, offer grant competitions and, and granting programs to provide money to the nonprofit sector. Aha, uh-huh. we have, for example, and, uh, go ahead. Oh, so, sorry, Sterling, uh, and then also many nonprofits have developed. Um, uh, ways of getting earned income, you know, for example, a shop or a store or some kind of uh, 
enterprise associated with their uh, organization. Indeed, we have the Vancouver Foundation here, Brent, uh, and they are very, very quiet, very low-key, very wealthy organization. And they have, since the COVID uh, lockdown began now almost a year ago, they've, they've given out over $11 million to nonprofit organizations in this region simply out of absolute necessity. So those are the, that is one group of funders that you're referring to, organizations capable of donating money to NPOs. Absolutely, yeah. Those are exactly the kinds of organizations that uh, are, are playing a really pivotal role right now. But, but the challenge with a lot of the way funding is done in the nonprofit sector is that the funding is provided for specific projects, you know, to run a particular camp or provide a particular program for... Sure you know, homeless or whatnot, and often done on a one-year basis or mm-hmm. even maybe a two-year basis, which really makes it hard for nonprofits to plan, you can imagine. You know, if, if you're making a plan, uh, you know, with a one- or two-year time horizon, and uh, that, that's difficult, you know, um, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the, the, the knock-on effects there is that there's not a lot of funding um, to build capabilities at the organizational level. So you know, not just at the project level. Is the short-term planning, uh, the, is simply, is that out of necessity, Brent? Uh, we, we'd love to have a five-year game plan for this organization, but we, we really don't see our, ourselves uh, able to, to support ourselves going forward that long. So let's take it year by year or two-year by two-year terms. Is that out of, out of necessity as much as anything else? Well, I think it's part of the structure of how the funding is, is uh, some funding is, is provided, right? So if, if the funding has a one-year term or a two-year term, uh, that by necessity forces a different level of planning than if one had you know, a five-year horizon mm-hmm. uh, or whatnot, right? You talk about, in the article, you, you talk about operating on small budgets and how, mm. how doing more with less is a badge of honor. And that's a direct quote. And it's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. A lot of people in nonprofit organizations do remarkable work on what most of us would consider a real shoestring budget. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, make no mistake, this, this uh, COVID has been a, a big challenge for members of the nonprofit community. Uh, and the fact that they're still moving and still moving forward uh, as well as they have is a testament to what I'd, I'd call passion capital. You know, they're pouring themselves into this organize, these organizations and really working hard, um, you know, to deliver the services to those members of the community that really depend on them. And so how then uh, pivot is the big buzzword of uh, the COVID pandemic, the human response. We have learned to pivot, Brent. We sure have. So yeah. how, how then have nonprofits uh, pivoted in order to uh, at least avail themselves of some of the funding still available that may be or may be considered to be redirected? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been interesting because there's lots of different types of organizations and they face different kinds of challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're an arts organization and uh, no one's attending your symphony or going to your museum, um, it, it's, it can be very tricky uh, to pivot. Uh, some of those organizations have started doing outreach programs sure. uh, and engaging uh, the community more directly. Uh, for social service organizations, uh, many of those have, have taken their, uh, their programming online or even um, one organization that runs a youth program, a basketball youth program, took it to the front doors of their members, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and so lots of really creative activities that, uh, 
that the nonprofits and, and these organizations are engaging in uh, to try to, uh, to find a, a shift um, going forward. And one of the things that we are able to assist in some way, Brent, uh, when possible, is to help them get the word out. Uh, in a lot of cases, that's, that's a real key. And again, there's no budget for advertising or anything. So clever organizations with good media people get the word out anyway, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. And I think this is another part of the challenge is when, when we fund at the project level uh, and not at the organizational level, not put our trust in an organization, um, w- some of those uh, kind of media people would be considered overhead. Um, you know, uh, same thing with HR and IT systems considered, you know, something that would be difficult to fund. Uh, you, you can imagine during COVID not having an H- a dedicated HR professional, how hard that would be uh, with the amount of layoffs and rehiring and general tumult. Um, that's been going on. Our guest is Dr. Brent McKnight, who is an associate professor in the School of Business, the De Groot School of Business, at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He's the co-author of a piece that we spotted the other day at theconversation.com. This is something that we talked about a fair bit on this program, too. The article is How COVID-19 Could Transform Nonprofit Organizations. And, of course, the use of the word could, Brent, is interesting because it already has actually hasn't it yeah no it sure has um you know i think it's going to be um i I think it'll be interesting to see how going forward uh the relationship between nonprofits and other members of the the uh nonprofit community shift and i think we're seeing already some movement in that regard you know we're seeing uh nonprofits uh foundations are providing of of funds Mm -hmm. Uh, we're seeing that they are often uh they're thinking about longer term funds uh, and providing unrestricted uh, funding. Uh, one thing that really was exciting to see during the pandemic uh, was nonprofit foundations saying, you know what, use this money the best way you can. Right. You know, we've given you money already. Um, you know, you're under a lot of stress right now, a lot of pressures. You know best, you know, what, what, what you need these funds to, uh, to do. Um, and so use it the, the best way that you can. So that, that's a designation of trust. Uh, and a shift in relationship, um, in a way, um, that could could carry over past uh, beyond the fun- the, uh, the the pandemic. So you talked about the funders, and and again, we uh, one of the best examples we have here in British Columbia is the Vancouver Foundation. Certainly not the only one, but they're a very very big one. So you, you yes. talked about they have restrictions on some on some of the uh, donations or uh, their donating methods, uh, and so you're saying that a lot of these funders have decided to remove or reduce the restrictions uh, and just make funds available. As you say, uh, you're the ones that need the money. Here you go. Yeah, and, and more importantly, they, they, these are the, the, the nonprofits know what they need at that moment in time. Now, I, I'm not speaking to the Vancouver um, Foundation specifically, um, uh, but yes, in, in general, the funders have said, you know, right now, uh, during covid um, the funds we've already given you, don't worry about delivering that particular project that you, you were you know, contractually obligated to uh-huh, deliver. Right. Use the funds uh, in, in the way that best suits your needs right now, which I think is a, a remarkable um, demonstration of trust, right, between mm-hmm. funders and, and nonprofits, uh, and uh, particularly at a, at a time where you know, trust could have been disrupted. So I, I think that shows promise. Um, and we do see some organizations starting to think about five-year funding models, um, which I think would be a very useful way to provide some stability for nonprofits, uh, as well as allow them to think about the future more. And if you think about the future, you're preparing for the future 
And we should see a more resilient nonprofit sector as a result. Well, it's interesting because uh, you, you, you focus a fair bit of your article about that, about what, what lies ahead for funding for nonprofits in the future. And, uh, and again, as our uh, uh, ultimately, a lot of the funders that you talk about are organizations that are able to deliver large amounts of money to uh, various uh, groups uh, for their urgent needs. But uh, talk to us a little bit, Brent, if you can, about those of us who are on non- not involved in any of these foundations or funding organizations, just regular folks who give when yeah. they can to whomever seems to need it the most. Where, where, yeah. do, where do we start to reshape our thinking if indeed we need to? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question, Sterling. Thank you for, for that question, because I, I think um, it starts for individuals with appreciation, you know, and looking around at what local organizations are doing um, and how they're helping the community. I think most people would be shocked and surprised um, about how critical the nonprofit sector is to the social safety net of our of our country, Good point. and even to the cultural identity of our country. Yep. Um, with respect to the work that they do, so um, so that that's one thing. I think it starts with appreciation, right? Um, and 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 then once you appreciate, you know that that opens up opportunities to engage more deeply, whether it's in a, as a volunteer. Um, you know, volunteering has been very challenging during COVID, but as it eases, uh, it will be easier. And then also, you know, if you are in a position to make donations to an organization, um, find one you trust and then mark the donation as undesignated. You know, we need to shift. And by undesignated, I mean not provided for a particular project. Right. Uh, a lot of us as donors want to give money to something and see a particular impact. Uh, and that means that's for us right, as a donor, rather than what the organization needs. And I think we, we need as a society to shift our thinking and, and to put trust in organizations that are on the ground working to help, you know, those that need it uh, or delivering a cultural mandate. Uh, and if we can do that, uh, we trust that organization, then let them spend the money in the way that's going to get the, the best impact. Well, you know, the thing that I think surprises most of us, Brandon, is just going back to a point you made a few moments ago about the importance of the nonprofit sector in the overall economy, because some of the services provided by nonprofit organizations, we are surprised to find out, oh, so that's how these people get things done. We just assumed the government was taking care of all of this. And in many cases, the government has nothing to do with it and were it not for nonprofits, there would be a lot there would be huge voids out there wouldn't there oh yeah um there's been a you know downloading has a negative connotation i, I we've chosen to to uh in a lot of ways to have nonprofits deliver many critical social services um and you know whether that's a good or bad decision um i think is not my place to to stay and i actually don't have have an opinion but we certainly need to ensure that that social safety net that's being funded is robust and and delivering for uh, um, you know for society. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, with that said, uh, uh, do governments have a role to play? We talked a little bit earlier about how some nonprofits are in a position to receive some grant funding from various levels of government. Is there a role for governments to play in the funding overall of NPOs, Brent, or are they on their own and should really try to focus on staying on their own and uh, making that independence count? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think that's another kind of sense of of, of wanting nonprofits to stand on their own, um, and it's a laudable goal. You know, I think that makes you know. I think we we have this sense uh, in our society that that is what we're looking for. Um, 
but but the the sector is specifically tied to social outcomes that are at a public level, right? Um, and and so government has to continue to play a critical role, and, and they are. Um, and there's been more funding um, provided uh, during this first year. Um, hopefully, it continues uh, into the second year into into this year, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all organizations are able to take advantage of uh, the monies that are being provided by governments. Um, you know, the Ontario uh, Nonprofit um, Association put out a, uh, a network, I should say, put out a, a study and, and not, I think it was about half or 60% were able to take advantage of some of those, those, um, those grantings uh, from federal governments and provincial governments. So there's a gap, you know, it's not reaching everybody. Sure. How about uh, 2020, of course, was the year, the lockdown and all the rest of it. Are you expecting, again, we're, we're early into the year, it's barely Valentine's Day, but are you mm-hmm. expecting 2021, Brent, overall to be a better year? You know, um, I think many nonprofits are more worried about this year uh, than they were about um, last year. Because hmm. uh, last year, they had some resources, you know, some uh, a little bit of money saved up uh, that they could use for a rainy day like this. Um, a lot of that has been depleted as they wrote out 2020. Sure. Right? Nine months of um, of that. Uh, and funds that were flowing pretty freely from government and from other foundations, um, you know, are, are slowing down. Uh, and that's that's a question mark. So I think a lot of nonprofits are are quite worried about it, and I think a lot of it depends on the pace of recovery and how quickly um, things get back to to normal. But um, as we see, uh, you know, we sh- we should never expect a, a quick uh, return uh, during COVID. That's another thing we've learned, isn't it? It sure is. And and I suppose now uh, the vaccine, of course, is the key to restoring uh, growth to the economy and all the rest of it. And and uh, I know that Canada is a little behind some other countries, but still the majority of the population is expected to be vaccinated sometime this calendar year. And as more and more of us get what the Brits call the jab, uh, that that's going to take that's going to take some pressure off nonprofits, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah, and I think many nonprofits. We look at nonprofits as being uh, either frontline in our study, uh, either frontline or kind of more at that orchestration level, you know, funders or advocacy groups, and and the ones at that orchestration level are are really looking for that inflection point. You know, when is when does the uh, when does the you know situation on the ground change, and then. The, the conversation is going to start turning to how do we build back um, and hopefully build that back, build back better uh, in the nonprofit sector. So I think that's going to happen sometime in 2021. Um, but certainly um, many nonprofits are worried that if this continues, like you, you, we, symphonies, for example, you know, uh, when are we going to be able to sit shoulder to shoulder in sure. a symphony? Um, you know, and that's going to be very, very challenging. Um, you know, for example, right? Uh, so I think there's still going to be a bunch of lagging um, of some of the resumption of normality uh, that, that could still cause a problem for many nonprofits. Well, I appreciate your time this morning, Dr. McKnight. It's been a real pleasure having you on the program, Brent. And this conversation is terribly important to have as more and more of us uh, become more aware, particularly in a time of, of urgent national need, we become more aware of the value of nonprofit organizations in our midst doing work that, frankly, we thought was being done by other people, in many cases, the government, and that's just not the case. Brent McKnight, thanks very much for this. It's a great pleasure to have you on the program today.
Thank you so much, Darlene. That was, that was fantastic. Thank you. Dr. Brent McKnight at McMaster University. We are, he's a prof in the School of Business. And the article, by the way, How COVID-19 Could Transform Nonprofit Organizations, is available for your perusal at theconversation.com. Always a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. And let me just set up his appearance with us by pointing out that in a speech this past week on Tuesday, our top spy, Canadian Security Intelligence Service Director David Vigneault, said China poses a serious strategic threat to Canada. And he went on and on, and we'll talk about what he had to say. But that was the setup. Here to talk about the speech given by the CSIS director is a former CSIS officer himself. David Harris is a lawyer in Ottawa, now the director of Insignus Strategic Research. Uh, But he has, of course, experience with our own security intelligence service. David Harris, good morning, and welcome back to the show. Good morning, Sterling. A pleasure to be with you again. Did you know David Vigneault when you were working with CSIS? Was Vigneault there as well? No, no. And I was only with uh, CSIS uh, rather briefly, uh, I guess in the late 80s, and uh, did a bit of work with them thereafter. Um, Yeah, amazing the amount of time that's gone by. Indeed. We've had the CSIS Act, of course, originally... Um, providing the clear mandate, as it then was, and then in 2017, a revision uh, of that act, which uh, in many ways is, of course, still up for discussion, uh, in part thanks to some of the observations that Mr. Vignon has quite usefully made. Well, indeed, and, and here's something, he's doing a little something, uh, something a little differently than during your days with CSIS. He's becoming a little more public. You know, our spy, yes. our spy service is, is by, almost by definition, David, something we shouldn't really know a lot about. But nonetheless, <laughs> it is, uh, it's our CIA, and, uh, we, and everybody in America knows about the CIA, so why shouldn't everybody in Canada know about CSIS? And I think that might be part of what Mr. Vigneault is up to, just letting Canadians know that, hey, we're here, we're a little, our hands are a little tied, and this is what you're alluding to, this 2017 revision to the CSIS Act. Uh, he's uh, basically saying, and I'm sure you can back him up, uh, they, need, they, they need more comprehensive powers. They don't have all of the tools in the box they require to take on international opponents like China. Yes, and this may be, as you've uh, indicated, one of the reasons why uh, Mr. Vignola has been taking this uh, really quite forthright initiative. And uh, for many people who may not have followed these kinds of things in detail, uh, it's hard to appreciate what a revolution this has been uh, over a number of years. In the past, um, intelligence organizations in the Western world tended to be a little uneasy about going into the specific names of specific countries that may have been on our radar. And in a way, this was to preserve relations with those countries and uh, also, I suppose, prevent uh, those of uh, our 
foreign ministry equivalent global affairs from having indigestion because, of course, the uh, foreign service in general uh, hopes to maintain fairly trouble-free relations. And uh, there you have often the diplomatic uh, intelligence tensions that occur quite naturally, again, in virtually any liberal democracy. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about what China is up to, because this is uh, this is what Mr. Vigneault is saying. First of all, even back in the 80s, when you were with CESA's David Harris, China was considered a bad actor. We knew that they were stealing uh, our cities. Industrial espionage was rampant. They were our, our, our secrets. Uh, and, and Vigneault talks about uh, it, Canadian companies being targeted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, he says, and I, I'm just allow me to quote this one sentence. He says, Canadian companies have been targeted. Some have been compromised, particularly Canada's biopharma and health sector, as well as companies involved in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, aerospace, and ocean technology. This is all cutting-edge stuff, some of which Canadians are really good at, David, that is being ripped off by our enemies. And uh, again, before getting into that, if I may, we have to remember that all of this, including our actions and failure to act, is in the terrible shadow of the uh, Chinese Communist Party's hostage-taking of two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. We, uh, of course, must never forget this because this is, as we know, one of the most primitive of weapons that is used by uh, countries, fortunately a decreasing number of countries in our world, the use of hostage-taking. But yes, so that is a useful insight, of course, into the style of, shall we say, management, criminal management of a totalitarian country. And totalitarianism gives an enormous potential benefit to those running foreign intelligence services, influence operations, and uh, grand-scale theft and larceny, Mm -hmm. because, of course, it allows for the centralized, coordinated control and action of intelligence services against foreign targets, whether they be a nation or the individuals within a nation. And so, yes, what you're seeing is a highly regimented, uh, more than industrial scale, really trans-global scale, uh, intelligence industry and operation. We, um, as the United States and a number of other Western countries have seen, the Chinese government uh, playing all kinds of games, uh, stealing enormous value in uh, intellectual property, yeah. uh, advanced research, and so on, that combined with the already enormous uh, Chinese government capacity through its industries and so on, and some questionable international economic practices, uh, is able to compound both the economic benefit to China, but also its capacity then to redouble these uh, terrible efforts and uh, then translate some of them into the kinds of influence and manipulation possibilities that allow uh, the uh, Chinese government to actually then undermine the capacity 
of uh, governments wanting to defend themselves against these very uh, predatory practices in the first place. Well, it's interesting that you would point to uh, some, some, some of the practices. For example, we have, we have now we don't have confirmed data on this, but there's a, a, a mounting paper trail pointing to the deal that the Trudeau government tried to uh, engage with CanSino, this uh, pharmaceutical company that ended up going south because uh, the, the the vaccine that was under consideration with possible um, manufacturing possibilities here in Canada, it, it turned out to be not uh, not the right type. And also, as I understand it, pressure was brought regarding the two Michaels onto the Canadian government and that uh, who uh, quite properly uh, did not buckle and that caused the deal to go sideways even further. And thus we're in the vaccine situation we are now. Do you know anything about that? Uh, no, no, nothing in detail, but it would be consistent with the kinds of practices and manipulations with which we're all familiar. And many people, I mean, Canadians, especially those in business, likely to be uh, enticed into doing business with certain Chinese entities, to be well aware of uh, many of the techniques that. Uh, Mr. Vignon was warning about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen various practices, including the possibility, of course, that a Chinese company might reach out. And remember that if you've got a company in China, you have to assume that company could be subject to the very manipulations and leverage, if it's not already outright, really, an arm of the Chinese government, sure. that uh, can cause trouble here. So you find uh, companies reaching out, inviting proposals say, from small startups, from major corporations, and those proposal requests often specify the need for the Canadian to provide all kinds of uh, detail Mm -hmm. about intellectual processes and property and so on. And uh, then, well, what do you know, after a spell, after perhaps extensive negotiation, the whole thing falls apart. Uh And a bit later, what do you find but something very much resembling the product in question, the Canadian product, emerges as a carbon copy from China, with perhaps even more extensive marketing than the Canadian producer will be capable of putting on around the world. And in the end, then, as a result of what's obviously been, from start to finish, a predatory practice, the Canadian company can wind up folding with the loss of employment and, of course, advantages that our research and thinking should have earned that. David Harris with us from Ottawa. Mr. Harris, the uh, head of Insignus Strategic Research, a former CSIS officer himself, uh, responding to a speech made by the head spy for Canada. David Vigneault is the director of CSIS. And in a speech a couple of days ago, he said what we all know, China poses a serious strategic threat to the country, going on to say it's about the government, not the people of China. And he also talked about something that you and I have talked about on this program before, David Harris, and that's this massive campaign of intimidation on the ground by agents of China uh, uh, targeting Chinese nationals in Canada and Canadians of Chinese heritage. Uh, Oh, yes, and this is a, a really dramatic development. Let me just make a quick remark, too about this uh, whole issue of how the um, uh, CSIS director quite properly made the distinction between the uh, Chinese Communist Party on the one hand, the government, in other words, and not the Chinese people on the other. Mm -hmm. He may have been constrained uh, 
to have made that point, first of all, because that, that's true, obviously, sure. of all foreign intelligence dealings with uh, adversary nations. But there's something else. Uh, China has been no slouch in trying to push the idea that virtually any kind of concern about Chinese government behavior is anti-Chinese racism. Yeah. And, of course, just as the Soviets used to do, and we presume the Russians still do, the uh, Chinese government has all kinds of institutes that study countries abroad, including Canada, and they know very well how sensitive the R-word, racism, is in this country, and how terrified people might be about risking, perhaps unfairly, the taint of racism. And so what the Chinese government appears to be trying to do, among many other things on the manipulation influence side, is to render radioactive, as it were, untouchable, the very idea of pointing out the sins, crimes, and so on of sure. the uh, Chinese government, its uh, intelligence apparatus, and so on. And particularly, um, any kinds of operations in Canada that could in any way be attributed to, rightly or wrongly, people of ethnic Chinese background. We know, incidentally, and it's worth mentioning, that any number of the people thought to be advertent or inadvertent agents of influence here are not even ethnic Chinese. We have uh, lavish numbers of uh, non-ethnic Chinese uh, business types, uh, politicians and others who appear to have been playing the game, as it were, with the regime in uh, China in order to extract what they imagine to be benefits. So special conditions in uh, trade and uh, that kind of thing. And perhaps by some of the politicians may think ingratiating themselves with Beijing, they may feel that they can thereby ingratiate themselves with the Chinese communities within Canada, which of course then raises questions as we should have been asking for many years, about the nature and types of immigration influxes and whether, for example, consideration should be given to the fact that countries like uh, Russia, which uh, are, of course, immigration supply countries for Canada, um, should not require some further screening because, of course, the people coming from those countries can be subject, despite their... uh, basic inclinations to pressure from their former homeland governments. So it's a, it's a very interesting manipulation. And, of course, what comes with this uh, would be attempts to uh, uh, work their way into media and other elements so that, of course, more efficiently the various lines can be pushed. And, and David... I'm sorry, I have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time and always grateful sure. for yours. But uh, this is why you and I do this every now and then. And it's just nice to see the top spy uh, in our corner uh, echoing the kinds of things you and I have been saying together on the radio for years. Thank you for this. We'll talk again. Thanks, David. Take care. David Harris at Insignia Strategic Research in Ottawa. Organizations around British Columbia are distributing masks to BC people having trouble accessing masks for a variety of reasons. Here to talk about the One Million Mask Initiative uh, is Etienne Brousson, who is vice chair of Deloitte, representing BC's business community, and Michael McKnight, the president of the United Way of the Lower Mainland. Gentlemen, good morning and welcome. 
Good morning. Nice to be here. Uh, Etienne, let's start with you at Deloitte. And uh, you and several other major business uh, leaders in this province have decided to organize the One Million Mask Initiative in cooperation with Michael and his people at the United Way. Let's talk about the, the motivation and the organization behind this initiative, please. The, the original motivation was that when we were looking at, at surveys, for instance, a lot of businesses, uh, we saw that uh, a lot of people, even though they, they might want to, to travel, uh, really uh, had issues with trusting uh, public transportation. So when we think about essential travelers, travelers and, and the ability of, of some people to have access to the mask, that was really uh, problematic. Uh, so we started having uh, conversations with uh, with TransLink, and then others joined uh, the conversation. Initially, it was a, it was uh, five hundred thousand masks, which became a million. And through this, uh, uh, Michael and the United Way also uh, identified that there was need for people. So the the group uh, started expanding. And uh, basically, Deloitte uh, had established a PPE procurement supply chain, and we leveraged those to work with our, our partners to get the masks. So the masks, uh, do, they, uh, do we have the million masks already, Etienne? Are they in a warehouse somewhere here in British Columbia? They, they 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 arrived. They were in a warehouse, and then uh, working with with partners, including BCAA. Uh, these masks are being uh, uh, sent to various locations, uh, various partners from the United Way. So these masks are actually being distributed right now. Yeah, and it's interesting that you would you had mentioned TransLink, and I'm just looking at some of the other uh, organizational partners. Etienne, YVR, for example, BC Ferries. You mentioned BCAA, BC Transit. Uh, these are these are these are the means by which many of us get around uh, during the pandemic, and many of us have to get around. And public transportation is for some the only option. Exactly. But that's why at some point it, it became a question also of, of equality and fairness for, for the prosperity of all British Columbians so that they could safely travel uh, even if they could not uh, otherwise afford or get access to masks. Michael McKnight is with us, the president of the United Way of the Lower Mainland. Michael, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, when, did they, when did they approach you or did you approach them with the idea of providing masks to those who may have some difficulty otherwise procuring them? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure I can remember that. You know, Deloitte, partners like Deloitte, uh, BCAA, TransLink are longtime partners of the United Way. Sure. We have ongoing conversations around how we can uh, effectively uh, collaborate to help our, our community. And we recognized that the United Way early on in the pandemic that it was difficult uh, for anybody to access masks, uh, you know, uh, our frontline uh, workers um, in healthcare were having a difficult time. So you can imagine that uh, social service organizations who also provide critical supports during uh, times of crisis were, were even, uh, you know, it was even harder for them to access masks. And so uh, when we identified those issues, we've been working with, with partners like Deloitte to access uh, uh, PPE for uh, a wide range of organizations uh, and their frontline workers, as well as their clients who, again, often have to take public transportation to access uh, services like food or, or other things that are uh, required during a pandemic. 
Yeah, and of course, um, we I remember the early days of uh, TransLink, Michael, when uh, SkyTrain, I travel on SkyTrain a fair bit, and I remember when it became the thing, masks became mandatory. Uh, and for the first few days at many of the stations and bus shelters and elsewhere, uh, SkyTrain and TransLink personnel were distributing masks happily to people boarding their, their uh, trains and buses. That, of course, is long gone, but the, the mandatory part certainly isn't. So what? tell us about uh, the, the supply and how people go about uh, who, who don't have uh, the opportunity to access masks on a regular basis. How do they avail themselves of these masks from the One Million Initiative? So we're working directly with dozens of, of social service organizations, neighborhood houses, uh, you know, faith, the faith community to distribute these masks. So we have a, a wide range of partners, not only here in the in the lower mainland and into the Fraser Valley, but in other parts of British Columbia. So, you know, frontline organizations, boys and girls clubs, um, a, a number of different places are, are working with us to distribute masks to their frontline staff and to and most importantly to their clients. So they can most people can access them through a, a an organization in their community. All of them are listed on our website at uh, uwlm.ca. Okay, uwlm.ca, friends. That's where you go. And if you scroll through the list of communities, uh, and Michael is uh, accurately pointing out, it's not just about Vancouver, Victoria. I'm looking at Prince Rupert, Creston, Bella Bella, Pemberton. The list does go on, Michael. So this really is a British Columbia initiative. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the great uh, underlying parts of this story is that this is a collaboration between the private sector, uh, some crown corporations, and, and the community to come together and uh, make sure that uh, vulnerable people are supported. And uh, that's what this is really all about. Sure. Etienne, uh, delight uh, being a principal leader in this program here in British Columbia. Do your counterparts at Deloitte offices across Canada have similar initiatives in other provinces? No, that, that's something that uh, we identified and started here. Uh, not to say that it won't uh, be replicated elsewhere, but currently it is a, a, a BC uh, initiative. And, your, and this all stems from the fact that Deloitte had a procurement process in place. Was that since the pandemic or did you actually have one before the pandemic? It, it mainly stems from the pandemic or earlier uh, in the process uh, through through various engagements with uh, with our clients, including governments. Uh, we we were able to identify and, and build those uh, those supply chains early in the, in the pandemic. Right. So you were you were able to move quickly at the yep. beginning, and thus right. and thus now you're in a position to have literally a million masks in a warehouse somewhere in BC. That's pretty amazing. Yes. Well, and, and as Michael said to me, one one of the things that that is is the most uh, uh, interesting and and fun and inspiring to this is that collaboration, showing that together uh, we could actually uh, do more than if we all uh, did our things uh, in isolation. So I I'm very thankful for all the partners that uh, that are part of this uh, collaboration. Indeed, and Michael, of course, providing the umbrella that the United Way represents uh, to so many efforts across BC. Uh, pretty easy for you to fall into that role again, right? Well, sure, that's the expertise we brought to the uh, collaboration. I will say, though, Sterling, it would have been impossible for the United Way to do this without those partners. Oh, sure. The table. We do not have the expertise in you know, procurement and logistics. Uh, we don't have the storage or the distribution capability. 
Each of the organizations around this table brought a different uh, unique set of uh, skills and competencies and experiences that allowed this to happen. And I think all of the people involved in these organizations are, are proud and thankful uh, for being able to live in this great province. And, uh, and when we can collaborate and help vulnerable people, it just makes all of our roles uh, that much more meaningful. Well, good for both of you and all of your partners in this uh, valuable enterprise. Etienne Brusson and Michael McKnight, uh, congratulations to you both. Keep up the good work, gentlemen, and thanks so much for taking a few moments to join us and tell us about it this morning on the radio. Thank you so much, Sterling. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.